Welcome to Into Theology. Uh, after long board meetings with the Into Theology board, we decided to replace Ian Clary because he is basically unable to keep up with me. And so we replaced him with Ryan Hurd, who actually knows much about Thomas Aquinas for this podcast. That's a joke. Ian's awesome. Anyways, uh, Ryan, I uh, am happy to talk to you. We Ian wanted right. to be here for this, but I couldn't make it. And uh, he, in fact, I think pushed to get you on here. And I think we'll probably meet with you again in a few months, if I remember correctly. Um, you've done a lot of work in Thomas Aquinas. So why don't you just give like the 30 second elevator pitch of your experience with Mr. Thomas, and then we can maybe talk about him a bit. Uh, 30 second. Well, just like uh, how, how you got into Thomas, why you like him and your experience. With how, I got, how I got into Thomas. Uh, like why I am I talking to you about Thomas essentially? Through, I got into Thomas through providential arranging, uh, by God of my life to where I read the right books, uh, learned Latin at the right time, got into neo-scholastic Roman Catholics, uh, theologians who were all about Thomas, primarily guys of Salamanca, and yeah, kind of went from there. And um, you've done academic study, and you're doing your PhD in Thomas right now, so you've, is that your right PhD? Did I get that wrong? Yes. Yep. Okay, so you, you've, you've really committed a lot of time to him. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and you've all, and you've been teaching on him at the Davenant Hall. And I think, I can't remember the summer you're doing another course on him. Is that correct? Or is it the fall? Yeah. So I've managed to, uh, begin something I wanted to do for many years because Thomas is hashtag so hot right now. He is. is doing some deep reading, uh, of, of Thomas to actually Kind of open him up for folks. I know that he's become very popular recently, particularly among Protestants, especially on issues of doctrine of God. But I see that the vast majority of folks, in my opinion, are, are mishandling him pretty, pretty severely and missing a lot of what's going on in Thomas. He takes he takes quite a, a bit to learn how to read, and so these are going to be reading courses actually styled off of John Piper's Look at the Book series, if you've ever seen that, where we're just going to go through and I'm going to explain the text line by line, and we're going to be uber Thomas nerds together, and uh, we're going to begin with a compendium uh, this summer and then and go from there. So. Well, it is true that when I think of John Piper, I think of Ryan Hurd. There's sort of an equal sign there, so that makes sense. Um, <laughs> okay. It is interesting. You mentioned that Thomas is uh, popular today for whatever reason. We we're just mm -hmm. talking about this, but it, I was, with the podcast, we did, you know, like I think a year and a half in John Calvin and like a year in yeah. um, Augustine, a bunch of Bible books as well. And then we started doing Thomas Aquinas simply because you just go through the big names of theology. Right. And uh, it's like the, in terms of podcast listenership, it really exploded in, in terms of listeners. So there, there does seem to be a new interest in Thomas. And yeah. I know there's lots of online stuff going on, but um, this isn't new. Uh, reformers and Reformed Orthodox like Thomas. Um, can you explain that to me? Why would Reformers and Reformed Orthodox read Thomas Aquinas? Since, um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to say something terrible, and I want you to correct me, because he's Roman Catholic. Oh, okay. That's a really complex question, and I think an even more complex answer, because 
they do like him in the sense that almost inevitably when you find the you know raging condemnations against the scholastics the target is either some very nebulous uh you know notion of scholastics whether it's contemporary to or formed at that time uh or you know immediately prior say in the 15th century with anomalous and the voluntarist and these these uh, categories that people like to reduce uh, the complexities of history to today. It's only so realist and voluntarist. That's it. Nothing else. Well, that's that's the only thing there's ever been. Exactly. And, and well, I mean, you know me, Wyatt. Let's be frank. Anything after twelve seventy two is basically, uh, you know, worthless uh, after Thomas has passed. But that's what most people say. That's pretty common. It's a common yeah, view. Yeah, I mean, that, that's 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 what I hold. Really, for me, seventeen uh, seven hundred to thirteen hundred is the sweet spot. That's what every Baptist really focuses focuses especially on. Especially the Baptists. Yeah, especially the Baptists. Yeah. But so the reform, you'll find them, they'll make these 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 critiques and then they'll say, but there are there are also sounder scholastics like Thomas. Yeah. Um, and so he's he's always within the sounder scholastics. The issue is that reformed and reformed orthodox have a very complex relation to Thomas. Most of which most of whose complexity has to do with the fact that there are very few of them are actually reading him. They're reading Suarez, they're reading handbooks, they're reading copies and quotations, they're reading their neo-scholastic opponents who are representing him uh, usually rather poorly. And so the Thomas that they are lauding is very much not the actual Thomas. And very few, if any, of the Reformed Orthodox are actually agreeing with Thomas in any significant details over, for example, issues of doctrine of God, which is where things are in common between Protestants and Roman Catholics. So, uh, But that doesn't mean that they're agreeing merely because they're citing him favorably or they are speaking in similar terms. Uh, even the same kind of terms. They're filling them with different senses. And that's one of the real difficulties that people face today is when they when they begin to read the scholastics, whether we're talking about actual medieval scholastics or the Reformed Orthodox and their neo-scholastic counterparts, because the language and the technicality is so foreign to people today, it feels very samey for a very long time uh, of, of, of research. So Everyone is using the same words. Everyone is using the same terms of phrase, the same kinds of arguments. And so it feels very flat and it feels very much like everybody agrees across the board. And this obscures the fact that there are extremely significant top to bottom disagreements and battles over doctrine of God uh, equal to differences and disagreements that we would know intuitively today between like a Maltman versus a Thomas Aquinas. So everyone knows that, okay, they might disagree or they might agree on a lot of things, but they are certainly disagree very, very basic issues or at the least it's very hard to reconcile them. Basically the same kind of situation is going on. Uh, in the early modern period, it's just obscured by the fact that everyone's using the same kind of terminology. So why do the Reformed like Thomas? 
that's hard to answer because they think they like him, but they also don't know him well and perhaps would be unhappy if they if they did. But that's a that's another question. Yeah. And, you know, I think one just ultra simplistic thing to say, too, is before the Reformation, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to say, like, well, everyone before the Reformation is is Roman Catholic and therefore unavailable to reform thinkers. Right. It's really an odd way to argue uh, because the Reformation was a big movement. And before you would simply just have the Catholic Church, you'd be reformed Catholic now, perhaps you'd say it that way. So I think it's a kind of an anachronistic to think that way. I think you can read anyone. We can read anyone, even Roman Catholic contemporary. But when you're thinking of someone historically who's part of the, the Catholic Church in the West, they are part of the same tradition, part of the same church, part of what we would understand ourselves to be a part of as well as Protestants. Um, okay, that's useful. Um, reading the sources is kind of important. And yeah, I've detected that. I mean, I think some people do read Thomas later on for sure in the 17th century, but it seems like in the 16th century, you have a little less of direct Thomas yeah. that, I, yeah. that I've noticed. I'm sure there's people who have too. Oh, sure. um, I, I haven't read them all, obviously. Like I would say, like, I think, I think Calvin, we detected maybe three or four references to Thomas and his institutes. But as far as I know, he never cites him or actually works with Thomas's words. He just refers to him. And it's probably like you said, thinking of a, a guy who says he's a Thomist in the 16th century. And the same thing is true. Like if you think about it this way, this might be easier for someone listening. In the 20th century, there was someone named Cornelius Van Til. And he was, uh, yeah, he's a Christian thinker, philosopher from oh. Westminster, um, oh. Philadelphia. Oh. Okay. But he he often talked about Thomas, but it seemed like he was reading a guy named uh, as a bishop bishop joseph butler if memory serves primarily would be like a 20th century thomist but not really as far as i know thomas himself maybe sure. he's looked at quotes or citations sure. and so so he's talking about thomism from a guy yeah. who lived 700 years after thomas mm -hmm. and, and maybe wasn't as accurate in understanding thomas as many people are inaccurate today I and mean, part of this the 20th century, you probably you know this better than me, but the 20th century, when it comes to Thomism, is weird. There's a lot of stuff happening. There is. A lot of people say, you know, they're Thomists, but they're very, like, almost purely philosophical. Yeah. And then there's some people who are Thomists who are more thinking he's a theologian. And this might be a good segue to something I wanted to ask you about. When you read Thomas Aquinas, and I'm, a I'm asking the question in a bad way so you give a good answer. Are you oh, reading well. him primarily as a philosopher or as a theologian and, and the context for this question is most of us think of him more philosophically but he opens his um summa by talking about sacred doctrine and he says sacred right. doctrine has its irreducible foundation in sacred in the sake in sacred doctrine by which he means the bible and yet yeah. he seems very philosophically inclined so is, is he a theologian or a philosopher because those are only the, the only two choices that are possible uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's the case, but uh, I know, I know. <laughs> I'm you know, asking the question people, badly. So you answer yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, I understand. I, and I respect yeah. that. You know, a lot of people approach Thomas with that kind of question in mind, oftentimes motivated to make him one or the other for who knows what reason. Um, you know, philosophers want him to be a philosopher. Theologians want him to be a theologian. Uh, Thomas believes in 
distinction of the sciences, the unity of the sciences, in the sense that there there is a there is a a way of ascending the various levels of of kinds of science, uh, which is a technical word for a certain kind of knowledge. And he approaches issues of knowledge so radically differently that it's your your question doesn't really track. And again, I know you asked it purposely like that. So for example, Thomas is chiefly concerned to determine uh, truth, which has to do with one of two parts of contradiction. So either it is or it is not. And when you come to various contradictions, sometimes those the data of those contradictions is data only available to uh, faith and supernatural revelation. Sometimes that data is available to faith and supernatural revelation, but also nature and reason. And you can muster intellectual reasons from both and also authorities, volitional reasons from both that variously incline you towards whichever part of contradiction is actually true. Maybe something is, maybe something isn't. Uh, but as we try and determine which one of those is true, we can marshal these authorities, we can marshal these intellectual reasons and, and have our intellect determined determined to one. This is how Thomas would speak. So one part, the true part of contradiction. And depending upon the nature of those truths and the kind of authorities or intellectual reasons which are being used in support of those truths, one might say, one is either operating as a theologian or a philosopher. So for example, consider, consider the judgment, the affirmative judgment that God is, which is in a certain mode predicating being or existence, just to speak generally for now, of a certain subject, namely God. So we're making a predication. There are various natural reasons, reasons taken from nature that I can summon in support of that part of contradiction in contrast to that God is not. And when I'm summoning those reasons from nature in support of that, or perhaps from various authorities who are natural authorities like Aristotle, who aren't operating from supernatural faith, the light, supernatural light of faith, then I'm acting as a philosopher. But when I am summoning reasons from faith, when I'm summoning reasons from supernatural authorities, whether that's Holy Scripture or the Church Fathers, that are inclining me to judge, indeed, God is. My intellect is becoming determined to that as the truth. Then I'm operating as a theologian. And this is why it's a bit confusing to people is because it's like, well, we're talking about the same thing, namely an affirmative judgment predicating existence of a singular subject, God, in a certain kind of way. And yeah, we are talking about it. We are talking about one single thing. We're talking about in different lights, we might say. And we're using different means of coming to know or coming to apprehend that thing as true. And depending on those various routes, we can be acting either as philosophers or acting either as theologians. 
And Thomas throughout his career at various moments is, is doing both. Uh, and in point of fact, in the Summa, for example, where he makes the claim, hey, FYI, I'm going to be acting as a theologian throughout, he's still pulling reasons from nature. So when you turn to ST1Q2, the existence of God, whether this that God is, is true to judge, uh, you're going to find the five ways. And those are ways or means for determining your intellect to the positive part of contradiction, which are available to nature and to reason. But I thought we were doing supernatural theology, or we're doing sacred doctrine, one might say. Uh, well, why are we doing sacred theology here? It's because we started out from the light of faith and under pressure of supernatural revelation, where, wherein God has told us, Exodus 3.14, I am. And it is out of that place of strength, which is altogether determined our intellect to the affirmative, that we then come on behind and discover other intellectual reasons for making that exact same judgment for reasons available to others from nature and reason. Mm. And, yeah. uh, and again, you know, we're, we're acting as a theologian, even though we're, we're, we're manipulating, quote unquote, philosophical reasons. And this is why it's a bit sticky for people to understand and what is Thomas doing, which is he being, and why folks have these kinds of questions. Um, it's because he's doing much more complicated things. Yeah, I also think he's doing, some of what he's doing was very, very common in his time and less common today, so it's slightly confusing. Just to give you one example of what I'm, or in, in the example of what I'm thinking of, um, in his Summa, he opens by basically talking about his method. And then he says, whether God exists. Well, yeah. if you're going to do a science in the 13th century, the first question you ask is whether that science exists. And then you say how it exists. Mm -hmm. So what he's doing, like you kind of read him and you think, well, this is weird. Why is he doing it this way? Um, and yet it's like pretty standard run of the mill stuff. It's like, if you read an essay today, you have a thesis paragraph and then you have a thesis statement at the bottom that structures the subsequent points. Now, if you're in college, everyone knows that's how they work. Yeah. He's doing a science, which is different. It doesn't mean modern day science, but he's doing a science. And the first question you got to ask is whether it exists and how it exists. Like it's just, it's the order of common explanation in his day. Mm -hmm. So it appears, well, this is kind of weird and heady. Like, why is he structuring it? Like, why doesn't he just go to like Genesis one? And I think part of the answer is there's a genre of, of communication he's participating in. But you mentioned it, and I want to clarify or restate what something you said. Even when he gives those five ways of God in the whatever, the second question, whatever it is, he actually bases it on his, um, on the proposition, on the subcontract of Exodus 3.14. Mm -hmm. So Exodus 3.14 for him is the sacred doctrine that tells you God is. And then he gives five ways that God is or God exists, or I can't remember the language he uses, the modes or ways. So yeah. I think you see that, okay, he's maybe given a philosophical explanation, but the order still seems to be the same order that he provided for us in, um, you know, the first, I guess the first question or sacred doctrine is still a foundational piece. Um, so you, do you want to, do you want to correct me on that before I go on? 
Yeah, I, I, I would I would not say that he is doing sacred doctrine in the said contra and then quote unquote switching to philosophical theology yeah, in five ways. The reason why why is that? Well, it's because the whole time his intellect is being determined to the affirmative by supernatural revelation. Yeah. Which is enabling him to then go out and discover other reasons for the same. But he's being supported in that task by God's own knowledge. Of him. That, that's so, a really help, helpful clarification. Because I, I, just to give you one, like a super basic, then you go on. If, I, if I'm a Christian and I go outside and look at a tree, uh, I can observe that tree and do natural science, but I view it as uh, having purpose to glorify God and having its efficient causes. It, there's just a different way I look at a tree after I'm a Christian, yeah. for example. And it's because, uh, because, as you say, I'm determined by what God has revealed. And that mm -hmm. means that I can do above and beyond. Like I would do the same thing everyone else is doing, but I would view reality quite differently. And so there's yeah. no there's no major distinction between those two things they're kind of an overlapping reality but yeah continue on sorry yeah well i mean it's important to recall not every said contra is like this but this is a, this is a said contra which supplies a reason a ratio uh that determines the intellect or makes the intellect to decide in favor of the affirmative not the negative Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But this certain reason is not an intellectual reason. It's purely a volitional one. Because the intellect can be decided to an affirmative or a negative, either via resources that are available to its, itself in its own range, which are intellectual reasons, or when the will determines it, which is what we call faith. Um, I, I want to ask you a clarifying question about some of the things you just said. I believe it's around question three where Thomas says something to the effect of you can't know how God is, but you can know what he is not something like that. Right. You're using positive and negative. I'm assuming you mean something like that in terms of how you predicate truths about God. So, um, and maybe you need to kind of expand, but can you explain what you mean by those words? Like what is the way of negation? What is the way of affirmation, the way of eminence, those kinds of things. Like you're using that language but it's doubtful that more than nine people in the world know what that means. Well, the, the triplex, we are the way of negation, way of affirmation, way of... <laughs> no, no, you have to use the medieval pronunciation. I'm sorry. It's via. It's not yeah, we are. So, okay. Not witty, witty, wiki, okay? We're only I'm medievalists sorry. here. Oh, sorry, go on. This is true. That's <laughs> the, that's, yeah, so that, the, the, the threefold way uh, to speak in good English... <laughs> is, is slightly different than what I'm speaking of here. A positive yeah. or a negative is, is just speaking of an affirmation judgment, which composes via an is statement, a predicate to subject. But like Paul is a human. Paul, Paul is a human. Uh, or a negation, which, which divides a predicate from a subject or removes it. So, uh, you know, Fido is not a human. So that's a negation. And when you face up, this is how we do theology, right? All of theology is simply determining either to an affirmative or a negative. So you have all these predicates, you know, uh, 
wise, good, etc. And you need to figure out how do we view these creaturely predicates, these creaturely realities in relation to God? Does God have them or does he not have them? Is Paul a man or is he not a man? Is Fido a man or is he not a man? Those are the types of questions we deal with in theology. And when we're inquiring about a certain predicate, uh, we need to marshal reasons which determine us or give us sufficient reason, in the end, a formal reason, for either the affirmative or the negative part of contradiction. Because it's either, it's either true that Fido is a man or it's true that he's not a man. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We, have, we have two parts of contradiction and only one is true and one is false. So when we come to God, we have, we have two options. Either God is wise or God is not wise is true. And we field reasons for either the affirmative or the negative. Those reasons can be intellectual or they can be volitional. I can proceed through authority. I can tell you that Aristotle says that God is wise. Therefore, you should believe that God is wise because Aristotle said so. That's a reason from authority, uh, which is making an appeal to your will to force your intellect to decide, not to violate your intellect, but to force your will to decide in favor of the affirmative. God is wise. Or I can give you intellectual reason, which talks about the nature of wisdom and how, you know, we, we look out into the world and we have to reason back to a cause of wisdom outside of ourselves and, you know, from which wisdom is derived and we eventually get to the get to a, a sufficient formal reason in favor of the affirmative that God indeed does have wisdom is indeed wise. It sort of um, strikes me that with what you're saying is you, you almost need to have a basic faculty psychology to understand. Oh, for sure. What's Thomas. going on? Like by faculty psychology, all I mean is do you have an intellect and a will and those kinds yeah, of yeah. things? Uh, okay. So, I like what you're saying. I, I think it segues into something I also wanted to ask you fairly well. I believe in book one, maybe article three, uh, or section or question three, he, he goes to this idea of some divine simplicity. I think it's right after the five ways of memory serves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's it's always an interesting question to ask why something's where it is. And it seems like Thomas is the kind of guy to think about stuff before he writes or orders his books. So wh- why would divine simplicity, like, you could you could have anything after you prove the science of theology exists. You know anything. So why why divine simplicity? Why is that front loaded? And um, what what is I mean? I, I, you you don't have like you have like ten minutes. You can't explain everything he means. But why is it there? What's what's going on in terms of his argument? Yes, Thomas is extremely intentional about his ordering of the SCG and the ST primarily. Uh, And the ST, in fact, is uh, a case where he's following... So ST is summa theologica, or uh, I, however you want to say it. And then the uh, SG is the... uh, Summa contra gentiles. Yeah, yeah, against the Gentiles. Um, Bad Gentiles. In the Summa, he's following what Thomas called the Ordo Intelligendi, which is where in a certain science dealing with a certain subject who in this case is God, um, 
we follow it's called the order of understanding rather than the order of discovery or the order of learning. So it's actually the reverse. You're starting at the top rather than the bottom. It's a lot more complex than that. But um, simplicity is front-loaded because of the nature of that order of understanding. Thomas mm -hmm. believes that not only has he adequately said everything that one can say of God, he does believe he's done that, and I believe that as well. In fact, that's one of the great victories of Thomas is that for the first time in history, everything that could be said of God was said. Um, but not only has he done that, but he's done that in the best way possible, considering the, the virtues of this order of speaking. Now, the best way of speaking, the best order or arrangement of speaking is not best for everything, something is good for a certain purpose, right? Uh, so the order that Thomas is following in the technicality of theological science is he views the nature of theological science. Uh, its virtues of following this order are not going to be readily apparent to folks who don't understand what that science is and does and, and, and so on and so forth. But it's primarily because of what simplicity, what divine simplicity uh, is in relation to all the other judgments, both affirmative and negative, regarding all the adequate, adequately reduced creaturely predicates throughout the rest of the uh, theology proper section. Hmm. Uh, that's that's the basic reason. It's important to recall here at this point, of course, it's constant constant misunderstanding. Even even when it's pointed out to folks that. Divine simplicity is nothing else except the negative judgment removing a certain composition of a certain real distinction, capital R, capital D, uh, the reason for whose negation is uh, a certain reason having to do with active potency, uh, the non-subsistence of essay, although it's the act of every acts, uh, essentia is the limit feature of essay, you know, in, it's you know, essay for Thomas is kind of interiorly inscribed or uh, delimited by way of its self-positing, which is essence or what something is. So, you know, it's a real distinction having to do with all these very, very basic metaphysical points that are proper and unique to Thomas in lots of ways. The negation of that composition, which is exactly what divine simplicity is. So divine simplicity is not something in God. It is uh, a bunch of mental content, uh, a bunch of data, which is, again, chief of whose components is a, is a negative judgment, dividing a kind of predicate, a certain predicate, namely a certain composition, a certain real distinction out there in the world that we find as we kick over sticks and stones and reflect about that uh, until we get to the heart of creatures, which is, you know, this joint of uh, essence and being or existence so to say at the bottom of creatures yeah people so, find that idea pretty interesting um l let me just uh for someone listening uh, this idea of like order of understanding and so it's actually quite important for theology and you already yeah. know this in the new testament if you're a new testament reader you've read the gospel of john or you've read philippians that uh views christology from this order of understanding it's you're, you're working from the assumption of who Christ is in his fullness before you give the historical 
narrative of his life. It's like a pretty key thing to think about uh, in these discussions, so-called like Christology from above or from below. A lot of times theologians access these categories. I'm not sure if they access them the exact same way Thomas does, but just to illustrate the point, John 1 already tells you exactly who Christ is in terms of his divine identity. He's always the person of the word and then about his incarnation. So that when you see the rest of his life, according to his humanity, you, you already have conclusions in mind that, you know, the end from the beginning, or this is like Philippians 2, for example, which is one of the, uh, Philippians is one of the earliest New Testament documents we have before the gospel books. And uh, you begin to see these things. So it's actually an important pedagogical point. It's not just something obscure, abstract. So I, I don't know the exact discussions that Thomas is in for these ideas, but you can kind of by analogy, jump into Thomas and think, well, he's doing the same thing that the gospel writers are doing, or John in particular is doing. There's an order of understanding of who Christ is, and you might front load a conclusion before you actually read the historical narrative that in essence proves well. the conclusion. And yeah, it's, to, it's, interpret it's it well. to interpret it well. Yeah. And we have to do this all the time. Like, there's no possible way to read the scriptures, by which I mean the Old Testament. Yeah after Christ came in any other way, except like, for example, Christ is the rock First Corinthians yeah. 10 or Jude, uh, Christ led Israel out of the wilderness. I mean, there's, there's no other way to read those passages e differently ever again, mm -hmm. but this is an order of understanding thing. And anyway, wow. so that's great. I, it's really important to understand that just to read your Bible, but Thomas is actually a, like I'm very much as I read him convinced, especially with his commentaries, he's a Bible guy. And while he's a very stable genius, smarter than, than I am, equal to Ryan Hurd, smarter than I am, that he's doing things that are deeply biblical, that are deeply Christian, but are hard for us to grasp because we're all dummies. Like I'm a dummy, so it's hard for me to grasp Thomas. But the more that I read him, the less I see him as a philosophical uh, Bertrand Russell figure. Yeah, and the more sure. I see him as he knows the Bible so well that his entire vision of reality saturated by divine revelation so that he can interpret it rightly. Like you, he can't see a sun, yeah. sunset without knowing why it's there. That's kind of the direction uh, that I would go. Yeah, I, I think that's right. You know, again, going back to the philosopher versus theologian bifurcation, it might be better just to think of Thomas as, as a guy uh, under whose vision of inquiry falls all of reality. God no, no, I affirm that he's a theologian and deny that he's a philosopher. Sorry, there's only two options here. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, yeah, but, I'm messing but, with you. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so, but, you know, the entire, you know, Thomas believes that being itself is per se intelligible. And everything... Okay, but, just before you keep talking, for someone listening, being is, is everything. Because when you say that, it's an odd word today, like being. So he being. thinks he thinks everything's intelligible. Yeah, everything that is, insofar as it is, and according to the various modes uh, of its being, uh, is inherently and and just so far understandable. But also because of God. Yes, well, as a source of all being, right at the back, and and therefore certain mode can be understood as being itself subsistently um but thomas standing back viewing the entirety of reality god included uh then has various lights in which to inquire about the nature of that reality and lots of questions that we might have about it 
uh, and depending on those kinds of lights, whether it's light of faith or the light of nature and the kinds of ways to know whether it's intellectually, volitionally, through authority, through scientific reasons, through intelligence, through wisdom, these are all different kinds of knowledge and, and, and vehicles of knowledge. He might be doing different thing, things and therefore wearing different hats. Right? Yeah. Um, well, as we kind of come near the end of our, of the, uh, of the episode, uh, I kind of want to ask, and, and this these might be more appropriate to have kind of like quicker answers well, you can answer how you want. So a lot of people in our circles, you're Protestant, you appreciate theology, um, see Thomas as a resource for, say, the doctrine of God in particular. Um, I would say in particular. I don't think anyone reads, not that anyone does. Well, but, but yeah. Yeah. Um, so where is he strong? Like, where, where can we learn from him in terms of doctrine to God? And where we, where might we feel some tensions as Protestants with his doctrine of God? You don't have to give like the deep answers, but just kind of some some things that pop into mind. What, what do we need to learn from him that we're we're terrible at? And where are some things that we might raise our eyebrows at? I think um, the main area that a lot of people would raise their eyebrows out at if they knew would be that the the majority of attributes or names that are predicated of God either in Holy scripture or by folks today and are, are considered to be like the divine attributes, things like God's mercy and so on for Thomas are not God's attributes are not in God are not things that God has, etc. So you read the reformed Orthodox and the vast amount of the material in their theology proper is primarily going to be handling the so-called biblical predicates that they're handed by reading the text of Holy Scripture. Most of which Thomas does not believe are actually attributes for various reasons. Primarily having to do with the fact that they're too small, or they contain some elements of imperfection and therefore have to be negated of God in various ways. So it's actually a very small, finite list of quote-unquote divine attributes. And those types of things will trouble people today. And I think that that's one of the arenas where we can most learn from Thomas, perhaps. Hmm. Because the reason why Thomas would look at the vast amount of biblical data that's revealed about God and say... No, actually, that's not literally true. It's merely metaphorical, things like this, and in extremely strong ways, things that are very precious. So chesed, mercy, God doesn't have that. That's not who God is. Those are the kinds of things we say in professional theology. Obviously, we don't say them outside professional theology because people are going to mistake and miscommunicate what that actually means and amounts to. But there are reasons we say that. And those reasons are really important also to Thomas. And I think that's where we can most learn from him, perhaps, is, is beginning to variously evaluate the biblical data. So you take all the things that are said about God in Holy Scripture. And at least initially, people are 
are pretty clear that not everything is of the same weight and value as we distribute and distribute it into our overall imagination of who God is. So like Exodus says, God, God is long of nose as a, in right. Hebrew as a metaphor right. for anger in English, it's translated, but long of nose, but we know that's a met, that's pretty obviously a metaphor because there's no body. Right. Right. So, so things like even God is love versus God is a tree. Those are not the same kind of statement. Those are not the same kind of truth. But both they're both true. They're, they're different kinds of, like, I like what you just said, but there are different kinds of truths that are revealed, but yeah. they have different reference. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it turns out, though, that that basic distinction, which is highly intuitive to everybody, because everybody yeah. knows that, uh, there's a lot of mini distinctions between those two poles. That become mini a, distinctions. I like it. Mini, mini distinctions, little little small pieces between those two poles. You know, God is good and God is love are about the best names that you can give God. Anything else is merely footnotes and a side dish to whet your appetite for actually getting into the deep stuff. And can I add to what you just said? There is um, in my reading, like I. Basically, I weirdly tend to read people who are before 1700s, so your your cutoff is whatever, 1242 yeah. or whatever it was. Um, and what you just said, especially in the, in the ancient and medieval church, it seems to be, not that everyone agrees exactly, but the common point that oh, God yeah. is basically love. God is basically goodness itself. Yeah. And that's just the, that's the font. Um, you might have other things you say, yeah. but that's the font. Like you would... It's just and, to intensify and just to yeah. dial that knob. That's all, you know, and there, there are lots of ways that we need to dial that up because I can tell you that God is love all day long and you don't actually feel any differently about that truth. Or I can speak to you poetically and appeal to your senses and give you good imaginations about that truth. And then you actually apprehend just how deep and wonderful and magnificent and beautiful that really is. And that's mm -hmm. a lot of what Holy Scripture is doing because it's pitched to us normal people. Pitched to normies. It's pitched to normies. Hashtag normies. They're, mm -hmm. they're, you know, they're the ones that save the world. So what we can best learn from Thomas is how, in my opinion, with respect to theology proper, how to sort that biblical data and evaluate it properly so that we can intelligently forefront the best things and then employ the less best things as illustrative to press home these deeper truths which are uh closer to who god is but less close to us in our material plane of existence and so they feel less real and less potent and less powerful you know who's really helpful on this uh, is reading C.S. Lewis. Um, yeah. I think if you're someone who, who hears this and is like, I don't fully grasp what's going on, just read C.S. Lewis a bunch, and then I think it'll make more yeah. sense. Um, C.S. Lewis be... had a deep, it's just deep, good instincts about this. It's like yeah. God is Aslan, and all the weird stuff you learn about Aslan is a is a really genius romp of the imagination wherein you are actually deriving deep, deep insights about God. Yeah. And even just ideas like, um, you know, like sometimes you think of the soul as less real than the body or whatever, 
Yeah, yeah. More real, more substantial. More real. Yeah. That's and real just those ideas that are like, whoa, that's different than I would intuit given the 21st century cultural milieu. And I think you got to realize someone who lives a thousand years ago, roughly, like a Thomas, a little less, is uh, living in a different cultural milieu where that kind of thing just seems intuitive and normal to think that the soul is maybe more real or whatever. And we live in a time where it's the opposite. So then you you hear these things that Thomas is saying, you're like, well, that's too abstract. It wasn't for him to abstract. Yeah. It wasn't for a lot of his listeners. It is yeah. for us because the abstract is no longer concrete for us today. The abstract is, we would say, unreal, not real. And that's the opposite order of things. Uh, Mr. Ryan Hurd, soon to be Regis, Dr. Reverend, and every other good title in the world. Thank you for talking with me uh, and helping me to learn more about Thomas Aquinas. Thank you, Wyatt. Good to see you.